I've been talking about loving kindness now the last eight days or so, and I keep wondering if I'm going to run out of things to say. But I realize I really haven't described how to do it yet, so <laughs> we're just starting now. <laughs> and when we recited the loving kindness discourse, it suddenly came to me, of course, that I hadn't talked about the preliminaries to loving kindness. And so when you want to develop loving-kindness, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, is there anything standing in the way between me and this wonderful state of loving-kindness? And that's what the preliminary prelude to the actual description of what loving-kindness is, is all about. And it's a very rich part of the discourse, that preamble. When it comes finally, what loving kindness is, is very simple. It's just the a wish for the safety of beings. May all beings be safe. In other words, not afflicted. We don't wish any affliction on them. And that brings us into right intention. Because under the path, the second factor of the Eightfold Path is right intention, and it's three things. The first is the intention of non-ill will, so no hostility or anger towards beings. The second one is absence of harmful actions, no intention of harm to any being. Sometimes they translate it as non-cruelty, but when you look at it, it's this famous ahimsaka, our intentions can divide into two things. One is we're just angry at somebody, ourself, anybody else, things that are pestering us, mosquitoes swirling around, we have anger. And then it, there's another level where we actually wish harm to somebody. We hope that harm will come to them. Those are two very different things. You're angry at your children sometimes, you're angry at your close friends and relationships, you're angry at yourself sometimes, but you don't necessarily wish harm to them. When it goes to that, then there's another dimension to it. Primarily, loving-kindness is perfectly in line with right intention. Right intention is the absence of ill will and the absence of danger or injury towards a living being including yourself. You know, it's strange and irrational, but people do, in fact, inflict deliberate pain on themselves to punish themselves. You see that in uh, extreme conditions. Physical pain. Now, this is a human characteristic and has taken root in some religious practices as well. At the time of the Buddha, the Jains were practicing infliction of pain on oneself and other independent yogic schools were also convinced that pain was the way around the addiction to sensory pleasure. So they had come to the conclusion there was something problematic or less than noble about indulging in just sensory pleasure. They weren't quite as wise or intelligent as the Buddha, so they thought just, well, it's the opposite. So if we can, in order to get 
detached from this world and our hang-ups, our dependency, our attempt to squeeze something out of it in a kind of a hopeless way of trying to squeeze some little pleasures out of it, we'll circumvent that. We'll live for a higher idea, some sort of afterlife or their versions of nirvana. And there are many definitions and attempts to conceive of something that would be ultimate liberation or an escape from situation. But they came up with pain, and I guess it's ordinary reasoning that the opposite of pleasure is pain, and if you just indulge in pain, then you'll somehow bypass the addictions to pleasures. And the Buddha even gave it a shot, but he was wise enough to give it up. It's not the way. And in fact, it's mutually exclusive from loving-kindness, right? Loving-kindness is the absolute non-wish for harm in the way of physical pain or any kind of hostility to beings. This is where right effort comes in. Almost all these practitioners, there's only two things they can think of. One is indulgence, which he had tried. Of course, he'd been raised that way in a sensory pleasure house. He'd been raised as a prince in a palace with the best of everything. It was a kind of a celebrated way of life. And then he tried the opposite. So these are the two paths that he has tried, and he's rejected both of them. And that's why he's strongly emphasizing this in right intention, because he sees it all around. People fall into just two things. You either abandon any concern for the shallowness and unsatisfactory nature of of just trying to get another taste of honey from a sight or a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought. Because it's frustrating, it's difficult to maintain, stuff goes wrong, you're left absolutely desolate if anything goes wrong with your access to pleasure structures, if anything goes wrong with your body or senses that uh, receive this thing. You know, you can lose your, you know, Beethoven... How does it happen? How does the great composer end up deaf? You know, can't hear his own music. What a thing that must have been. Eh? Bach, he went blind for a period of time. He got his sight back, strangely enough, but he went blind. You can lose any of these senses. And, of course, if you lose your money or your access to these things, then you're, you're bereft of the only source of happiness. And then sometimes you're just emotionally kind of depleted. And uh, when you're depleted and not enthusiastic, you lose your appetite and you lose your capacity to be enthused about anything. And so this is a very dicey and problematic place to lay your bet on, to place your bet on happiness in that area. I mean, if you don't have some time to think about these things, to reflect on it, it may not occur to you. Obviously, you see people live very impulsively and they don't learn the lesson. They do it again and again and they don't seem to learn from their experiences. A human is the only animal that cannot learn from experience. It's not quite true, but sometimes you think. <laughs> because it's the mind is, when it's, uh, it's in a flurry, not serene, not reflective, then it just goes for the first thing. And there's an underlying sense of incompletion. It's just a matter of time before it comes up to the surface in all kinds of 
problematic ways. The Buddha is bypassing this and he's saying it's not the place to look for this. And it's human nature to look in those two places. One, indulgence and pleasure, and then the thinking, well, I'll get out of it by the opposite. I'll live removed from that in a painful way. One of the problems with that is if you don't have a place to go outside of that mere denial of sensory pleasures and so forth, you're primarily starving. You're emotionally unfulfilled. So you're a great candidate for Mara at that point. It's just a matter of time. The Buddha describes this where he talks about the four herds of deer and Mara's pasture and there is a certain herd of deer which is extremely resolute in going to the forest and never coming close to that pasture. There's nice grass growing in that pasture but they have observed that As the deer wander in there, Mara just comes out and closes the gate. He's got the deer. Now there's a certain herd of deer that as soon as the gate's open, they're in there. And they absolutely abandon all concern for that gate. It's the only way out. And at the moment, they're just indulging in that lovely green grass. Mara just comes and closes the gate. Mara, in this case, is death. Others are a bit hesitant after seeing that. So that's the person who is just heedlessly headfirst into any pleasures that come along. (laughs) They stuff anything into their mouth. They have no circumspection about this. It's total indulgence. And they're swept away. You'll see that easily swept away by overindulgence in drugs, alcohol, excess of food, any kind of excess and death comes from that heedlessness the death of the higher part of the human as well you know and then often <laughs> there's other likelihood of actually shortening your life as well another herd of deer having seen this are a little more cautious they haven't given up on the idea of the grass the grass still seems good but they've decided to keep an eye out for the gatekeeper They go in there thinking, well, of course we want the grass, but we've just got to keep an eye out on that gatekeeper thing. But it doesn't take long once you're roaming around that pasture to get a little negligent about keeping an eye on that gatekeeper. (laughs) Mara gives you a little more time, but eventually once he notes that your vigilance has deteriorated, then he closes the gate. Having seen this, the third herd of deer goes to the forest and says, we're never coming out. And then they start to lose weight. They get very, very thin. They get weak. And then finally, in a moment of desperation, they rush in to the field for something and then utterly abandon all attention. And just close the gate. <laughs> so the fourth herd of deer is this One has seen all these tactics and says, well, the way to do it is you've got to live in the forest and you've got to go in just for enough and then leave. And that's the way. And so they stay in the forest, go in for enough and then leave. And Mara never catches that hurt. If you don't have a highly developed mind, capacity to find peace and well-being in meditation, 
It's just a matter of time. If you try to remove yourself from the ordinary sense pleasures, somebody comes to the Buddha and he's very appreciative of the monks meditating in the Jetavana grove and he says to the Buddha, you know these monks, you know they're living in solitude, they only go to town just for their nourishment, they get the one meal a day, they go back and they're spending time under the trees meditating. You know, if a person really didn't have good concentration, they'd go crazy, wouldn't they? The Buddha says, yes, just so, just so. Somebody goes to the forest, no sensory experience, they go crazy. (laughs) If you don't have some sort of distraction and you don't have any samadhi, you don't have any concentration, you can't do it. You'll be out of there. This is the careful to understand how we can pull ourselves out, not just be indulgers, living in the shallow and very problematic and unsatisfactory immediate hits of the sensory world. And we can't just decide we're just not going to do any of that stuff. The only way we're out of that is we've got to have some food. And we have to have the food from another source. It can't be from the sensory world. We have to have satisfaction, inner satisfaction. One of the most accessible of these is cultivation of loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is easier than stilling the mind with pure breath or using the other kind of samadhi objects and exercises. A much more accessible and easy way to find the fullness and ease is through this loving-kindness. There's four Brahma-viharas. There's also compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. But the first is not by accident loving-kindness. The second two are just partial. There's a certain direction of loving-kindness. So compassion simply is loving-kindness for those who are suffering. And sympathetic joy is just simply loving-kindness for those who are happy. And so you join in with the joy of those who are happy, and you wish for the safety and well-being of those who are suffering. By the way, you don't join in with their suffering. As you do with the happiness of with those who are happy, you can join in with that. You're not supposed to join in with the suffering, and that's one of the big mistakes people make with compassion. They join in with the sorrow. They're empathic to the sorrow. That is a mistake, a very grave error. Instead, you wholeheartedly and warmly wish them safety and not to suffer. And then you're experiencing the warmth and the bliss, really, of loving kindness. And this is a very good thing. You don't want to add any suffering to the world. And there's plenty of people suffering out there. If you have the option of not suffering, you should take that. Otherwise, you'll add to it. And the fact that there's many people suffering is all the more reason why you should not. You need to remain healthy, full, complete, because that's the balance, and that's the balance that's needed. And that gives hope, actually, for people who are suffering. If there's somebody healthy, if there's somebody well, that's light for somebody who's suffering. (laughs) It's like, maybe it's possible. Maybe I could do that, too. It's important. And the last one is equanimity. We talked about the balance between equanimity and loving-kindness last night. So, Fulfilling right intention through loving-kindness. The other part of the right intention is, the last one is renunciation, which is the overcoming of impulsive greed. 
It's the relinquishment or feeling the burden of always needing things and wanting things and keeping things and piling things up as they're never enough. And then you got to protect those things. There's the anxiety. There's so many ways to lose it. And then you might even live your whole life and not lose it. But it would be nice if you'd known that at the beginning, then you wouldn't have to done all that worrying about it. I think Mark Twain said, uh, I'm an old man. I've had many troubles, most of which never happened. You just can't get out of it. Once you're into that thing where you need, you need to hold, maintain, keep, collect, increase. You might even succeed, but it's emotionally impossible. You can't both care about that stuff and pretend that you're safe because you're never safe. Reality is always on the edge of your mind that none of this stuff is ever safe. You cannot make it safe. And its source is in uh, goodwill for yourself. It's like, this poor person, they're so burdened. Couldn't that person be free? Wouldn't it be nice if they didn't? How can they be free? Well, maybe if they didn't care about this stuff so much. If they didn't think that their happiness depended on it so much. What if they had another source of happiness? That's where renunciation, the idea of renunciation comes from. This is called nekama in uh, Pali. And who understands the word renunciation these days? Nobody uses the word. But it's it's a very good word. <laughs> the idea of renouncing things. The simile is as a king walks away from his kingdom. That's the idea of renunciation. Like, enough with the kingdom stuff. You know, just... I'm out of here. Have a good time. <laughs> that has happened, of course. I mean, what is the Buddha? He's a prince. He's the inheritor of a kingdom. He says, thank you very much. I'm 29 now. <laughs> I think I know what's coming. <laughs> I'll see you later. I'll be living in the forest on uh, nuts and berries, but um, it appeals to me more than being a king. And I actually see through history, he's not the only one. A number of the other disciples were also from royalty or aiming for substantial wealth. They were from families that were wealthy. And you see this also even in Christian history. Occasionally an heir to the throne will just walk away. I think Edward VII, he married a commoner and can't be the king of England. You see wiser people just, I'd rather not be a king. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Some of them became monks. That One of the kings of France, or who is headed to be a king, became a, a Catholic monk. So this renunciation is an incredible, if you can understand what it's about, it's about mind-blowing freedom. And I think that phrase is nice. I mean, that's really what mind is blown away. It's the mind of burdens. The mind of the impossible task of controlling the world around you. And that's when you're dependent on that sensory world for happiness and those kind of things you're in an impossible situation. No matter how smart you are, how clever you are, it's just like 1939 in Germany. You can have all kinds of stuff and you're not going to get away with any of it. One way or the other, the world can snatch it from you anytime. This is a vast wisdom Freedom and 
alternative possibilities are available through loving kindness. What an amazing thing. It solves a lot of problems. And if you can cultivate it, if you can bring it into existence, then it's going to give you a sense of sustained fullness and contentment. I mean, this is what people look for in relationship. What are you looking for other than love? And what do you expect to find in this love? Maybe you've touched on it occasionally, and just even a taste of it makes you think about it a lot. But that's just personal love, intimate love and love of close friends and so forth. But this is also not so easy to find, and it's reliant on whether they hold up their end of the relationship and all this stuff. People will go to great extremes for that, and it's still not the highest. Metta is a much more accessible and totally safe structure because you're not asking for any conditions. No one has to fulfill your conditions in order for you to have this including yourself. So this is a wonderful thing. It's like no strings attached. You either radiate this without concern for the qualities of the beings you're radiating it to, or you're stuck. If you have the slightest conditions, the slightest hesitation, you deprive any being of it, you're in danger of losing it. Because it's just a matter of time till somebody disappoints you. So... It's got to be open-handed, free, and then you can have it as long as you want and you'll never lose it. And if you try to keep the slightest thing up your sleeve, just a little few reservations there, (laughs) one day that's going to fall out. (laughs) The way it goes. The aspiration is to freedom. We abandon ill will. What do we get? It's goodwill. We get free of the burdens We abandon wishing harm to other beings. That's a poisonous feeling. That's an illness that pervades your whole body, comes into your dreams at night in strange, twisted ways. Who wants that? (laughs) But if you don't understand the brilliance of letting that go, you see, people will offend you. You will have enemies. People will be a threat to you, and to others that you care about, I hope something bad happens. <laughs> well, you've just fell for it. Mara just shut the gate on you. <laughs> you got caught. You lose your life. So with your own wisdom, you have to see the disadvantage of that and that you can't give your well-being to others. You can't put it in their hands, your well-being and delight and wholeness, fullness of heart. You can't hand that over to anybody. You can't leave that up to anybody else, no matter what they do. That's your precious possession. And all you have to do is not make any judgments, radiate goodwill, and you're in. And it's unconditional, and therefore you feel safe with it. It's something that the world cannot take away. This is the advice of the wisest beings that have ever walked the earth. They do it. They say, if you want it, it's free. It's very easy. No money involved or anything like this. And you can do it in all kinds of areas of life. You don't have to be a monastic to do this. This is why the Buddha is endlessly praising it also for lay people. It's just 
madness to think that you can't do it as a layperson. It's not hard to do. What's hard to do is not do it. Life is hard. Everybody knows that. Why is it hard? Because you don't practice loving kindness. You make it hard. You don't do the easy thing. Practice loving kindness. Loving kindness has no enemies. Would that be nice? You don't have any enemies. There's no one against you. Because you just wish well for all beings. You don't have a problem with yourself. You don't have the harsh inner voice, criticism and so forth. Because it's not a good tactic. But you do have your faults. After all, you're not an arahant necessarily. Maybe not even enlightened. But you can still have loving kindness and not be enlightened. What happens when you have that and encompasses the self, you wish yourself well. You wish yourself to be safe. And that means that you will do everything you can in your power to stay safe. And you wish it for people around you, and then you will do everything in your power to offer them safety as well. And that means you'll be generous, patient, thoughtful. You will be a source of health for others. Amongst the sick, you will be well. And this is your immune system as well. This is protecting you. Nobody bothers you because you're unwounded, so you can handle poison. Because you have no open cuts. <laughs> this is emotional. You have no wounds, and so nothing gets in the wounds. So this is the healing that comes from this goodwill. And uh, you speak to yourself with a kindly voice and encourage yourself. And you recognize your own failings and so forth, but not with harshness. Because you've given up ill will. So it doesn't mean that you indulge yourself. That would be not loving kindness. To allow some sort of negative tendency to continue would not be kind to yourself. So you're always interested in unwinding these negative or bad habits and so forth. You're always interested in that. But you're not going to do it by harshness. It's not going to respond to that. You're going to do it by kindness. But kindness can be extraordinarily determined. People do all kinds of amazing things because they love it. The greatest art, the greatest music is produced because that person loved it. Not because they were angry at themselves. That doesn't produce it. It's not the kind of energy that produces anything. But you will see great artists who had great potential go down the tubes because they tried to do something by forcing themselves or harshness towards themselves. And then you'll see self-destruction happen. And that happens with very talented people sometimes. You'll see them go up because they have not loving kindness for themselves so the energies are wrong and eventually it sabotages their own creativity the thing they love there's a nice saying by Oscar Wilde and each man kills the thing he loves I'll let you think about that one <laughs> have you ever killed the thing you love it's because you don't love it in the right way loving kindness never kills anything but attachment strangles all kinds of things. So we have to be aware of these, uh, all of this in order to 
assist us and motivate us for this divine experience of loving kindness that's so available, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, going to work, coming home, making a living, doing the proper things in your life with the proper balance and the proper relationship to the structures around you, the sensory world around you, and the relationship to your higher well-being. Loving-kindness always will be encouraging you to go farther with your practice, to deepen it, to clarify your mind, to raise your well-being. And that's how it flows naturally. The Buddha is always using this saying that if you get your mind going the right way, it's like the Ganges River. It flows and slopes towards the ocean. It just goes that way. So once you get it in a certain way, it starts to flow that way. It's that nature. And that's the nature of loving kindness, wanting to increase the skills. Now, they mentioned this right at the beginning. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. It's skills. And so it's required intelligence, it's an art, and it also requires education. Next phrase is, who knows the path of peace? So we need to educate ourselves just in the basics. It doesn't take long to learn the Eightfold Path. That's the path of peace. And to develop skills in goodness, and then the other aspects of this will naturally follow from this.